uh, in the month of December, uh, as we've been kind of trekking together toward Christmas, and this is awesome, Christmas is just around the corner now, uh, we've been observing and celebrating this season called Advent. Advent is this season on the church calendar, the weeks before Christmas, where we sit in longing and expectation for Christmas morning. Advent is a season in which we allow that thing inside of us that we know longs for so much more than what the world has to offer. We allow that to take over to a certain extent. And as a community, as a church, as we've been journeying through the season of Advent, we've been in a series called When the Lights Fade and the Music Plays. And here's why, very simple reason. We've been reiterating this week after week. But it's like that moment when you go to a concert to see your favorite band or your favorite artist, right? Mumford, Bieber, Celine Dion, Michael Bolton. I don't know who it is for you, but you go to see that artist. And the opening act has finished up. They've wrapped up playing their mediocre set, right? And now they're at their merch table trying to make you buy their we're good too kind of thing. And the background music is playing and the house lights are bright. And then that moment happens. You're standing around with your friends, chit-chatting, making small talk, trying to fill the space. And it feels the anticipation is just taking over you. It is consuming you. And you're looking at your watch and you're just wondering, when are they going to come out? When will they start playing? And then the moment happens the background music starts to fade and the lights in the room start to dim, right? And all attention begins to focus on the stage. And against the backlit stage, you see the silhouette of your favorite band or your favorite artist begin to walk out and the room explodes in applause and cheers and hoots and hollering. And they come out, and you are waiting for that first note. You're waiting for the guitars and the bass and the drums and the keys and the vocals. You're waiting, right? That's why you are there. Everything else has been fine and dandy, but this is why you came. And Advent is that moment when the lights begin to fade and the music starts to play. Advent is the moment in which we allow that feeling of anticipation and hope and longing to take over us as we get to Christmas morning when we celebrate the best, the greatest, the most important song that was ever sung, that God loved us enough to send his son and change the entire human story. And so along the lines of music, during this month as a community, we've been in the, the gospel, this ancient book of Luke, where this man named Luke wrote the story. He told us the story of Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, in the book that he wrote, there are these songs and prayers and prophecies surrounding the birth story of Jesus. 
And we've been looking at those stories, those songs, and those prayers together. And tonight, as we wrap up the series, we are going to look at a prayer. It's often called the Song of Simeon that is often glossed over. You've probably seen it in Luke and just passed it by. I know I have many times. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. The text is in your bulletin, in your notes. It'll be up here on the screen as well. But it's this story, this really interesting story, and then the culmination of a lifelong hope and expectancy of a man named Simeon who we know very little about. Here's how the story goes. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, I know I've lost some of you already. You're like, that's the lamest start to a story of all time. (laughs) Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, took him, baby Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, which is funny if you think about it, right? As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Let me just stop there for a second. In the original language of this text, it's written in ancient Greek, and the word consolation is actually a word that means comfort or drawing near. And so this righteous, devout Jewish man named Simeon, who we know very little about, is waiting for God to bring the Messiah or the Savior or the Rescuer or the Chosen One, whatever you want to call him, Neo, right? God is waiting for, uh, Simeon is waiting for God to send the one that would bring God's comfort and bring God's drawing near of Israel. And we'll talk about why he's waiting, why the entire nation is waiting in a second. It had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah or Savior. Moved by the Spirit, he, Simeon, went into the temple courts. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Let me stop here for a second. In order for us to understand the full weight and gravity of the song of Simeon, of the prayer that he is about to pray, we have to understand Simeon's life and worldview. In fact, we have to understand the worldview, not just of Simeon, but of all the Israelites, the Jewish people. The nation of Israel starts in your Bibles, it starts way back, uh, we could say probably in Genesis 12, like at the very beginning of your Bible, God comes and he has a conversation with a man named Abram, who would be renamed Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. That guy, God has a conversation with him and he tells Abram, listen, I'm going to give you a buttload of kids 
So many kids, in fact, it's going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, seashore. And here's the deal. Your children are going to become so, like, there's going to be so many of them, they're going to become a nation, an actual nation. And they will be not just any nation, they will be my nation. Your children, Abraham, will be my chosen people. And these children of Father Abraham become the nation of Israel. Now, out of this promise of Genesis 12, what happens to the nation of Israel is really interesting. God has promised them that they would be his people and he would be their God. But if you look at the story of the nation of Israel, what we find is that their entire history is littered with slavery. It is a constant ebb and flow in and out of slavery. They are first enslaved in Egypt. And then they trek through the desert. They finally get the land that God has promised them, the promised land. They're like, woohoo, we made it. The fulfillment of God's promise. We truly are his people and he is our God. And they establish this kingdom. And then soon enough, the kingdom crumbles. They have a civil war. It gets crazy. There's infighting and the kingdom crumbles. And year after year, there is this ebb and flow in and out of slavery. The Assyrians come and conquer them. The Babylonians conquer them. The Persians conquer them. The Greeks conquer them. And in the first century, when this story takes place, Israel, God's chosen people, they are enslaved to the largest, most powerful military might empire in the history of the known world at the time. An empire called Rome that ruled with an iron fist by sword and spear, with violent coercion. And these are God's people who have been promised directly by God that they would be His people, the greatest nation on earth, exclusive connection to the God of the universe, and yet their story is one in which they have been slaves longer than they have been free. And so into that context, we understand and realize why this was so important for Simeon. He was waiting for a Messiah, as was the entire nation of Israel, that would come and save them out of bondage and slavery, not just from the Roman Empire, but from every empire that could ever be for the rest of human history. Israel is waiting for a Messiah that would come triumphant on a white horse with sword and spear that would take down all of the other empires of the world and restore, rescue, and redeem Israel to its rightful place as the preeminent nation in the world, loved by God, chosen by God. This is the thing that Simeon is waiting for, and he has this pact with God where God has told him, listen, Simeon, you're not going to die until you see that Messiah, that Savior that you are waiting for. And when he sees the Savior in the form of this infant child, Jesus, he holds him in his arms. And it tells us that Simeon was moved by the Spirit And he prays this prayer. He sings this song of a prayer that is drastically different 
than what the people of Israel had been expecting in a Messiah, in a Savior. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Salvation prepared in the sight of all nations for Gentiles and for Jews. Moved by the Spirit of God, holding God himself in his arms, that's the prayer that Simeon sings. This word here, this phrase, all nations, in the Greek, in the original language, is the phrase pas laas. Can everyone say that with me? Pas laas. That was not very good. Let's do that one more time. Pas laas. You all have been given your master's degrees now in Greek. You're all scholars. Amazing. That was fantastic. Paslaas in the Greek means each and every person, nation, tribe, human being. And so what Simeon prays, what he sings when he holds the the infant Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world in his arms, is not the prayer that was expected by Israel. He does not say, this, this G- God, you can send, you can, I can die now because I have seen your Messiah, your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation for me and my people. That is not what Simeon says. Simeon does not see the coming of the Messiah as simply a personal rescue or just a rescue for his people Israel. He sees Simeon, moved by the Spirit, sees the rescue of God as being for the entire world, for all nations, paslaas, for each and every human being on the planet. The theologian N.T. Wright says this, Simeon had grasped the truth at the heart of the Old Testament that when Israel's history comes to its God-ordained goal, then at last light will dawn for the whole world. All the nations will see what God is unveiling, a plan of salvation for all people without distinction. For all people. Listen, you and I are benefactors of this because most of us in this room are not Jewish. I, shockingly, am not Jewish. (laughs) And most of you are not either. In the first century, when Jesus showed up on the scene, the understanding of the world in the Jewish mind was that there is us and there is them, and there is a distinct separation between us, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and everybody else whom they considered Gentiles. 
And yet when Simeon holds the Savior of the world in his arms, moved by the Spirit of God, his, re his revelation, his understanding, his new enlightenment in that moment is that he, his eyes, he says, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, not just for me or my people. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord revealed and presented on display before all nations, a light for Gentiles and for my people Israel. He sees past the separation. He sees beyond the wall that keeps us safe in here and everybody else safely out there. This is the story of Christmas. This is what Advent, the anticipation and the hope of this season reminds us of, that on Christmas morning, everything changed, not just for the good people, not just for the right people, not just for the people who do the right things or say the right things or pray the right prayers, but for all of humanity, that the walls have come down. And Simeon, I love his words, he says, my eyes have seen the salvation against the wall, the backdrop of division, the wall that separates Israel from the Gentiles, he sees hope when everyone else sees division. I want to show you a picture. This is uh, the separation wall in the West Bank. It separates Israel from Palestine, modern-day Israel, modern-day Palestine. If you ever look at the news, if you ever watch the news, you know that this is one of the most volatile, most violent, uh, one of the darkest places on the planet today. This wall, you can see some people walking kind of down the road there for uh, kind of reference, right? For scale. You can see how big this wall is. This is not some rinky-dink fence. This wall is almost 30 feet tall. And it's, it's thick, I mean, it's designed to withstand, like, bombings and, you know, all sorts of things. This wall, 30 feet tall, runs hundreds of miles down the border between uh, modern-day Israel and Palestine. And again, it is one of the most violent and one, one of the most hotly contested areas of the world. This wall represents oppression, separation. This wall defines for people who's in and who's out, who is acceptable and who is unacceptable, who is chosen and loved by God, and who is an infidel, unchosen, ready to be sent straight to hell. That's what this wall represents. And those understandings are all simply defined by which side of the wall you live on. There's a British graffiti artist named Banksy that many of you know. And a number of years ago, Banksy went to the West Bank. And against this wall, he began to put up all of these different art pieces that he was working on. And one of the pieces he posted, this is back in, I think, 2005, about eight years ago, was this. This huge, beautiful peace. Two boys with paintbrushes who have, not with guns, not with grenades, but with art, 
have ripped open this wall that represents separation and oppression and bitterness and anger and violence and territory rights. And instead, they have seen against the backdrop of this brokenness an oasis paradise. Hope. Peace. Oneness. Joy the beach, and palm trees. A perfect 80-degree day. Amidst the rubble and the barbed wire fence, this artist gave us a vision of what is possible. Now, this is not a political statement. We are not talking about Israel and Palestine and who owns what and whatnot. That is not the goal here. The goal is simply to give you this picture that this artist Banksy saw against the backdrop that everybody else would see as as a symbol of oppression and division and war. This artist Banksy saw something much more beautiful. He saw hope. He saw innocence. He saw beauty and peace. And Simeon, a Jew, an Israelite, living in an oppressed situation in the first century, scrambling to just survive under the might and the weight of the Roman Empire, sees salvation. And he doesn't see it simply for his people. He sees it for all nations, for Paslaas, each than every human on earth. So the question for us is can we see the salvation of the Lord this way? My wife, Jenny, didn't grow up a Christian. She uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home. She didn't go to church growing up. She uh, became a Christian in college. She was going to school at Rutgers University out in New Jersey. And she had a dorm mate who was a good friend of hers at the time who was a Christian, a follower, a passionate follower and lover of Jesus. And this dorm mate of, of Jenny's would invite her on occasion to uh, a campus ministry called Campus Crusade. Uh, these days it's just called Crew. And she would invite Jenny time and time again. Never with coercion, never forcefully, never manipulatively, just in kindness and in gentleness and in generosity. Hey, Jenny, if you ever want to come, feel free to come out Thursday nights. You're always welcome. And my wife, being the non-religious type, was like, oh, I'm okay. You know, thank you, but no thank you. And, and this doormate of hers would just consistently ask her, Like, hey, me and some friends from crew are going to the movies. You want to come? Hey, me and some friends from crew are going to go bowling. You want to come? Me and some crew friends are going to go grab a bite to eat later. Do you want to come? And my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, she like consistently over and over, just like, no, no thanks. This happened all throughout her freshman year of college. And for a year and a half, my wife just said no. But her sophomore year at Rutgers, my wife, Jenny, began uh, to, to go through some really difficult times in life, some situations personally and with family, and it was just a dark and difficult time of life. 
And one day she's in her dorm by herself and she's at a loss. She doesn't know what to do or where to turn and life just felt like it was spinning out of control for her. And so it like, like a light bulb, it just went off and she realized, oh, my, my friend has been inviting me to this thing on Thursday nights. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm at such a loss. I guess I'll try it. And so my wife trekked across campus by herself to the room where Campus Crusade would meet. And she walked in. Can, and can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy in the heart of her doormate who had been inviting her for a year and a half? Her doormate saw her across the room, dropped everything she was doing, ran across the room, embraced Jenny, and was like, I'm so glad you're here. This is amazing. Thanks so much for coming. And so Jenny went and sat down. And it's so funny the way she tells the story. The band got up and started playing. And she was like, this is the worst music I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) This sounds like bad 80s pop music. And then this guy got up and started talking very much like I'm doing right now. And he was saying things like, Jesus shed his blood for you. My wife was like, ugh. That's not, that's like, that's not sanitary, right? <laughs> and it's like they take communion, eat the body of Christ and drink his blood, right? And my wife was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get out of here. This is insane. But she says afterwards, even though it was like this really weird, awkward situation, and some of you are here because a friend invited you, and many of you can relate right now because you're like, dude, that's how I feel because you're a weirdo. (laughs) I apologize. But afterwards, she says that the people there were so interested in her life. And she couldn't like, she like, it didn't make sense. She, she says, I've never been in a room with that many strangers who were so interested in me. It was like the weirdest thing. And they were kind and, and generous and, and genuine. Long story short, my wife got really involved with crew. She gave her life to Jesus that year. And she ended up becoming a leader at Campus Crusade at Rutgers University. And a year after that, she and I started dating. And 11 years after that, we are here. And my life is different. Her life, my my wife's life is different. In fact, because Jenny came to know Jesus, that began to have a trickle effect on her family. And now her mother, who was not a Christian, is a Christian. And, and God willing, if my wife and I have kids someday, our children will grow up knowing Jesus. And God willing, their children will grow up knowing Jesus. And all of this, the legacy of faith that will carry on, God willing, for generations in my family is in part due to a girl who I do not know who chose to see against the backdrop of Jenny's broken life and her separation with God. There was a girl at Rutgers University who saw against that wall not separation but hope and she chose to do something about it and so many lives are changed because of that decision not because this friend coerced Jenny 
or forced her into anything, but simply because she invited and she loved. She was kind and she was generous. My wife today, right now at this moment, is actually just a few short miles from where she became a Christian. My wife is in New Jersey right now. And the reason she's there, on Thursday, we got a phone call. My, my wife has family out there in Jersey, near Rutgers. We got a phone call from Jenny's aunt, who called Jenny to tell her that there was a death in the family. One of Jenny's relatives passed away on Thursday. And so my wife is trying to figure out, should I, should I, do I go out there? What, what's the most responsible thing to do? Now, this side of the family, they're not religious They don't know Jesus. They're not Christian whatsoever. But Jenny's aunt is on the phone with her on Thursday, bawling her eyes out, just losing it. Can you imagine losing a loved one during this season especially? I mean, it's hard no matter matter what season, but during Christmas, I mean, it just feels wrong in so many ways. And this irreligious, non-Christian aunt of my wife's says through her tears on the phone, she knows that I'm a pastor and Jenny's a Christian and that we were religious and all of that. She says to my wife, would you pray for us? This is what happens, right? Sometimes in life we butt up against that wall that separates us from God. And we have no idea what's on the other side, but when, when our faces smack right into that wall, and there's tragedy or hurt or pain or loss or, or whatever. Life seems to fall apart. We have nothing left and nothing on this side of the wall. Nothing we can create or manufacture on our own seems to be enough. And so we say crazy things like, can you pray? I don't know what that means or what that looks like or who you're praying to, but can you just do that? Because it feels like I hit a wall and there's probably something on the other side. And that conversation happened between my wife and her aunt on Thursday. And my wife in that moment decided, I'm going to go. I have to go. And I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do. I just need to be present. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly a red-eye flight to New Jersey, pay all this money for a ticket and all of this stuff, and give up a few days at home. She's on Christmas break. She's a teacher, and she's giving up a few days of her Christmas break to do this one thing. My aunt asked me to pray. And so I'm going to go to Jersey, and I am going to pray. Because that's all I know to do. My wife is seeing against the backdrop of this wall that separates her family from God, she is choosing to see hope. This is all of our stories. Those of us who know Jesus, we are here because someone at some point in time, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a classmate or a coworker, but somebody at some point in time made a decision to see beyond the wall that separated you from God, the wall that kept you from a relationship with Jesus. When you saw nothing but a barrier and oppression and separation, 
and darkness and brokenness and a barbed wire fence that kept you from experiencing the fullness of life that you imagined might be possible, somebody else in your life saw against that wall a ripping open of the cement and the rock and the brick and saw hope, peace, joy, comfort, grace, mercy, justice, love. And they saw it for you. And if you are a Christian who has made the journey from one side of the wall to the other, your calling on this planet is to see what Simeon saw. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, not just for me, not just for my tribe, not just for the people I like. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord for all nations, pas laas, each and every human being on the planet, my classmates, my coworkers, my family, my friends, the barista who serves me coffee, and the banker who gives me my money, every human on the planet. That's our calling, to see hope where the rest of the world sees hopelessness, to understand and embrace this reality. That salvation has come for the entire world. The season of Advent, if, you, if you've been following with us, um, is thematic. There are themes for every week. We have the themes up there uh, in the back of the room. Hope, prepare, rejoice, believe. And this last week, the theme is believe. And so the question for us, do you believe in the possibility of salvation for all? Do you believe enough to see what is possible when others cannot? And do you believe enough to do something about it? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Silver Chair. It's a part of his Chronicles of Narnia series. And in the silver chair, he tells the story of a young girl named Jill who meets Aslan the lion. And if you're not familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, just hang with me because it's going to sound super weird. But Aslan is a lion, and he talks. (laughs) Um, But he represents Jesus, right? So you can't laugh. Um, (laughs) Aslan represents Jesus, but he's a lion, so he's scary. And Jill meets Aslan at the bank of a river stream. And Jill is dying of thirst, but she's afraid because she sees this lion. And this is the dialogue, the conversation that happens between the two in the silver chair. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. 
And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. (laughs) I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And in C.S. Lewis's sheer brilliance, As a storyteller, writer, and theologian, he encapsulates in a short, brief, powerful, and poignant phrase what Christmas really is about. There is no other stream, said the lion. And you and I are surrounded by men and women who in their thirst this undeniable, unquenchable thirst in their souls are struggling to satisfy and to quench at rivers that simply do not satisfy. And if you have gone to the river of Jesus, and if you have said yes to His invitation, Come and drink. If you have tasted the waters of hope and grace and life that change the entire story, and yet you keep that to yourself, if you have not presented the invitation to all those around you, not with coercion, not forcefully, but in kindness, in generosity, and in love, the invitation to come and to drink from the river that satisfies, the only stream that satisfies the, the, the unquenchable thirst of our souls, if you have not done that work in your world, in your life, then you're missing the point. And if you are at a place in life where you are thirsty, where you are looking, where you feel like you keep running up against this wall that separates you from the sort of life you believe is possible somewhere, someplace, then may tonight be an invitation. This community is here to rip the wall open for you and to tell you in love and generosity and kindness, there is hope. There is something beyond the wall. There is a river that will satisfy every thirst you could ever possibly have.
This does not mean your life will be easy. It does not mean that all of your problems, financial, relational, emotional, and otherwise will be solved. It simply means that you will understand life with a depth that you've never understood it before. And in that depth, you will find an unspeakable joy coming to the surface that covers you, that changes you, and changes your world. There is no other stream. Here's what I would ask you to do. In, on, on your chairs, each of you have a couple of cards for our Christmas Eve service. And if you want to, you just consider somebody, a friend or a neighbor, a barista or a banker, a classmate or a coworker, a parent or a child, somebody in your life who is thirsty. And would you just invite them? And here's the deal. They may not show up, and that's okay. My wife didn't show up for a year and a half. A year and a half. That's like, that's pretty short, you know? Some people like don't show up ever. They don't show up for a lifetime. Yet that does not alleviate from us the responsibility to see against the backdrop of separation the salvation of the Lord for all people. Remember when you were a kid, and uh, I don't know if everybody did this, but you and your friends or like you and that girl you really liked or that boy you had a crush on would lay on a beautiful grassy knoll on a lovely summer day. <laughs> and you would look up at the sky and there would, be, there would be these like beautiful clouds rolling by. And that girl that you just had a crush on would be like, oh my gosh, that looks like a unicorn. And you didn't freaking see the unicorn, but you were like, for sure. <laughs> unicorn all the way. Right? And sometimes you would see something in the clouds. And the friends you were with would be like, you're crazy, I don't see that. Oh, I swear, look at it. It looks like a giant rocket ship. Like, what are you talking about? No, it doesn't. It just looks like a cloud. And you would say it over and over, and you would describe it. You'd be like, no, look, look, over there. Just look at it from this angle. No, like, you got to turn your, just look this way. Turn your head a little bit. Squint your eyes, whatever, right? And then, and then sometimes, like, miraculously, your friend, and maybe they were lying to you, who knows, but let's believe the best. Sometimes they would be like, oh, I see it. I see it. Your job, your calling in mine is not to force anyone to see that which they cannot see. But if what we have seen, the salvation of the Lord, is truly the salvation of the world for each and every human on earth, then should we not continue in love, in generosity, in kindness? No. Keep looking. And someday you will see that there is no other stream but Jesus.